0: Uh, This morning we continue our study in the book of Daniel, and I'll be reading from Daniel chapter 3, which will be the uh, message sermon this morning, so Daniel chapter 3, read from the ESV, you may follow along or you may choose just to listen, Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar is sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, And therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast... Into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O King, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought, and so. They brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is that true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is a God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace." Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not even singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Then the king promoted Shadrach Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thus the reading of God's word we continue to worship God having heard his speak to us through his word by returning our speech and song to him continuing with Psalm 135 verses 4 and 5. The novel Silence by Shusaku Endo is a haunting novel. Uh, Indo is one of Japan's uh, greatest novelists, 19 books to his name. He's called Japan's Graham Greene. His novel, Silence, was recently rendered into a major motion picture by Martin Scorsese, who seems almost obsessed with the novel. The theme of silence is integral to the story. As a Christian, the movie is actually very hard to watch. The book is even more difficult To read. Both describe Portuguese missionaries in the 17th century who left their own homeland in order to go to Japan to reach out to the Japanese people to disciple and care for uh, those who confess Jesus in that country. Uh, The book's main character uh, is Sebastian Rodriguez. He was born in 1610. He enters the priesthood at age 17. He and his fellow priest, Francisco Gurape, two somewhat idealistic Roman Catholic missionaries, set out on this grand adventure towards Japan, not only to help the Japanese professing Christians there, uh, but also to look for another missionary who has disappeared, it seems, off the face of the earth, a highly esteemed and lionized missionary named Cristobal Ferrara, Uh, but he was not to be heard from. So when they land uh, in Japan, they're greeted uh, by many Christians who have been longing for leadership and shepherding. But they also meet another character, Kichijiro, who is a drunk coward but also becomes a literary foil in the novel for a Judas figure. And this is not unimportant because uh, Indo has... Been said to develop more insights into Judas uh, than anybody in modern times. Well, Kichijiro helps missionaries along their way, but ultimately he betrays them, especially Rodriguez. And um, <clears throat> these priests, you see, uh have to painfully watch other Christians martyred through various means of torture, whether the infamous pit, beheading, are being crucified, uh, and tied to a cross on the beach, with incoming high tide, so that they would eventually drown. But the catch and the ultimate escape hatch to avoid this torture was the famous Fumi festival. During the Fumi festival, there was a plaque put on the uh, ground with the image of Christ on it, and all that these missionaries had to do was to perform a feat of sacrilege by stomping on the plaque, and then they would be freed and liberated and no longer tortured. However, what the priests do not realize, but the reader comes to recognize, is that Ferrara, the long-lost missionary, has apostatized under the cruel torture and pressure of the samurai, especially the famous Inui, the leader of the samurai, who has set out as a vanguard and through unspeakable Cruelty leads the samurai in an attempt to rid the country of Christians completely. Infamous especially was this torture called the pit. So what they would do is they'd put a little slit behind the ear, and then they'd hang the Christians upside down so they would bleed out very slowly while they were listening uh, to cruel punishments and torture being applied uh, to Christians. The priests are made to hear the wails of their fellow Christians, and they must undergo this horrific torture. This is what forced the long-lost missionary Fiera to apostatize and to become a Japanese citizen and deny his Lord, listening to the torture of other Christians while the pit torture was being applied to him. Likewise, after watching the torture of many, including the drowning death of his fellow missionary, Garape, Rodriguez, the main character, finally denies the faith and lives the rest of his days as a Japanese citizen as well. It's a very poignant and painful tale about the enemies of the gospel striving to stamp out the religion of Christianity. Well, this morning in this famous chapter in our Bible, we see something Somewhat similar going on. So I'd like to look at three points. The so return to Babel, first point, return to Babel. And then the resignation or resign to die. And then the rescue that happens in the fire. Not from the fire, but actually in the fire. So first of all, the return to Babel. Part of the purpose of this series is to show you how these stories are linked and hold together. So, for example, Daniel 1 and 2 were linked by dreams. Daniel 3 and 4 are linked by the image of Nebuchadnezzar. It's easy to see how Daniel 3 holds together as a single story because it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. There is a plot which creates tension, but eventually moves towards resolution. There's a striking use of repetitions in this chapter, And that's not by accident. You heard them as they were being read. There's the list of the officials, verse 4, verse 7, verse 29. And then there is the redundancy of the phrase, peoples, nations, and languages, in verse 4, 7, and 29 as well. Notice the constant refrain of musical instruments, verse 5, 7, 10, 15. And then the names of the Hebrew youth, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't ask me where Daniel is. That's not worth speculating about. Uh, verse 12, 14, 16, 19, 20, 23, 26, 28, 29, and 30. And then the list of the instruments. It's entirely likely that the narrator's tone here is ridiculing Nebuchadnezzar, especially in his attempt to reassure himself of his powerful control. This loquacious and redundant narrator is reminding us As if we could forget at any moment that the image is something King Nebuchadnezzar erected himself. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 6. And therefore, he mocks the king's attempt to be remembered as the head of gold. It's very simple to outline the chapter. Verses 1 to 7 describe Nebuchadnezzar's image, which he erected, in case you forgot. Verse 8 through 12 describes the accusation of the three friends. Verse 13 to 18 describes the confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar himself. Verse 19 to 27 describes the miraculous deliverance in the fire, not from the fire. And verse 28 through 30 describes the confession that Nebuchadnezzar makes after observing the miracle. Now there's something universal about this story, hence the return to Babel. Um, Already in chapter 1-2, we had a hint of Babel, when in chapter 1-2, it locates Babylon in the land of Shinar, similar to Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, pride led to rebellion, even an assault on heaven itself and against God. So God had to come down from heaven and reduce those arrogant people to humility and scattered them all over the face of the earth. Well, this is where the plot tension is introduced. Nebuchadnezzar built a huge golden statue and insists that everyone present bow down and worship it. All nations, all tongues, all peoples. You hear there's a kind of universality represented here. Even the musical instruments that are described give a cosmopolitan feel to this chapter, as opposed to the accounts of music, for example, in Chronicles, where Many of these instruments don't even appear. Many of them are Greek loanwords. The kinds of universal instruments described here, gathering a host of peoples, nations, languages, to himself, Nebuchadnezzar, is already trying to reverse God's judgment uh, that had occurred at Babel. Now let's be very clear about one thing. Nowhere in the text that we read this morning, or that stands before us now, Does it say that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to get these three Jews to stop worshiping their God? Um, Nowhere does it say that he is only trying to suppress the Jews. The command is given to all Babylonian officials. Esther would be a good book to contrast with this because there the Jews are singled out. But you see, the Jews were to be monotheists, so I guess you could say impliedly uh, Nebuchadnezzar is getting them to stop worshiping their God as the only uh, true and living God. Their belief in one God prohibited them from performing such a ritual, and some of their adversaries knew it. They're identified as just some astrologers, and they were probably in some sense colleagues with these three Jewish Jews that had arisen so quickly uh, to an official status. They were probably jealous in some sense with these three who had risen so quickly. Notice Nebuchadnezzar does not condemn the three Jewish friends specifically for worshiping their God. Rather, Nebuchadnezzar condemns them for refusing to worship, literally prostrate themselves before his God and the image, which is a kind of idol. Now you may be wondering here, there's a question about whether this is plural gods or singular god. We'll save that for the Sunday school discussion. It could go either way. But what is it about this megalomania that would cause Nebuchadnezzar to be so enraged? Is this merely the stuff of legend or myth? Or is there something more seismic under the image which Nebuchadnezzar has constructed. The answer can be found in looking at the kind of slander that the three Jewish friends, that's brought against the three Jewish friends, according to the charge in verses 8 to 11. Verse 8 literally says, They ate their pieces. They ate, that's the verb, their pieces, pieces of their body. Uh, This is a common Akkadian idiom for slander. It actually finds its way into Hebrew and into our Psalter. And that is why we rendered Psalm 27.2 in the Trinity Psalter hymnal, when evildoers threaten to eat my flesh away, meaning to accuse, backbiting, I guess we would say in modern parlance. The charge is one of disloyalty to the king, but it's also impiety they said in verse 12, these men, the three young Jewish youths, have paid no attention to you, O king. Your God, they do not serve. And the image of gold, which you erected, they do not worship. So notice it's not only communicating disloyalty to the king, the charge is, but also impiety. Now notice the immense contrast between Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the accusing, slandering Chaldeans. The narrator is showing you their character, not telling you their character. That's the difference between showing and telling. As Mark Twain once wrote, there's no art in conveying the image of a boar, one who's boring, um, by letting him run on for page after page of dreary dialogue. The art is showing him, that is, allowing the boar to show himself as such, In as few words as possible, both parties stood before the king, the accusing, slandering Chaldeans and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Chaldeans seek to advance themselves. Their loyalties clearly belong to the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse, absolutely refuse to adopt the king's religious practices. They don't seek to advance themselves, but they do risk Not only losing their political station, but perhaps even losing their very lives. The Chaldeans have nothing to lose and everything to gain. The Jews have everything to lose and nothing to gain. Whatever was the nature of this statue, whether pure gold or gold-plated, we can discuss that in Sunday school, the fact of the matter is that it held both religion and state together. And such is the case even in our modern era as well, as it was in the ancient world. See, there's something very insightful here about kingdoms that would turn bestial against God's people. As Herr Balder van Schirach declared in 1936, published in the London Times, 1936, one cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God. But an arousal of faith in the eternal German is at the same time an arousal of faith in the eternal God. If we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Führer, serves Germany, and whoever serves Germany serves God. Close quote. Now there is rank, bald nationalism on steroids. Many who reflected on the Holocaust in Germany saw this dynamic at play. And that is why Martin Buber, five years later, a Jew, uh, would write the following. Every nation is inclined to make an idol of its own inner spirit. Israel's calling was to erect a throne to God rather than to itself. And that is why every nation is bound to desire to get rid of us, that is, Israel, at the time, it is in the act of setting up itself as absolute, quote. As John Calvin said so provocatively years ago, the human mind is a factory of idol-making. So Nebuchadnezzar sets an either-or proposition before them, the Jewish use. Do it or die. So they resign to die. Nebuchadnezzar has the three Hebrew men brought before him, And he asks if what he has heard is true, that they refuse to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And then with utter audacity, Nebuchadnezzar says in 15b, the second half of 15, then who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands? This is the climactic focal point of the story so far. But to these youths, death is desirable over and against apostasy. So they respond to the king. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego answered and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need with respect to this matter to make a defense before you. If our God whom we worship is able to save us from the fiery furnace and from your hand, O king, he will save us. But if not, then let it be known to you, O king, that your God we are not serving and to the image of gold which you have set up. We will not bow down. Now, if you were paying attention closely, the translation I just read is a difficult one indeed, although it does follow very closely the Aramaic. Since it seems, if you heard it, especially as I accented, whom we worship is able to save us from the firing furnace, it seems to imply a doubt with regards to the ability of God to deliver from the furnace. Now, many have misunderstood this verse for years, syntactically somewhat difficult. And some have said, as one writer says, and I quote, just to give you a feel, it can hardly be that such strong champions of their God would for a moment admit that he was unable to deliver them, and that to a heathen king, they could admit the possibility of his not intervening to save them, but not his inability to save them, close quote. So people try and do all kinds of gymnastics with the text here, either by bluntly changing it or finding some other possibility for explanation. But rather, as I said in a paper 21 years ago, and I quote, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are examples of the altar people in every age. Not peculiar, not special, Except perhaps in the degree of severe circumstances in which they find themselves, they are human. And although they are very gifted and talented Jewish youth, nevertheless, they are mere men. Moreover, they are Jews in exile in the early stages of exile at that. So you see, thus their faith, weak as it was, takes on new significance in this light. Power must be perfected in weakness. This is the theology of pilgrims. The notion is, rather paraphrased, if in his sovereign good pleasure our God can deliver us, he will do so. Remember how extremely difficult it was for these Hebrews being in exile. It's clear that the experience of judgment that had led to exile would have left them in a sensation of disorientation. And discontinuity, a radical break with the past. Therefore, we must not think of these three young men inappropriately. We must think of them precisely, not thinking too highly of them, nor thinking too lowly of them. They were but mere men and humans, but noble men. And thus, it's worth reading uh, a piece of noble writing about them. As one has said, this is the religion of principle. When we consider the circumstances of those who made this reply, when we remember the comparative youth, the few opportunities which they had for instruction in the nature of religion, and that they were captives in a strange land, and that they stood before the most absolute monarch of the earth with no powerful friends to support them, and with the most horrid kind of death threatening them, We may well admire the grace that God would so amply furnish them with for such a trial and love that religion which enabled them to take a stand so noble and so bold. Close quote. See, the essence of it is they were concerned with one question. The most significant question a human being can ask. How can I be right with God? particularly in this situation. There are men and women and children who are men-pleasers, as Machen says, who are not interested in that most important question that one can even ask. But those are not the kind of men, as Machen says, who change history. As he goes on to say, the beginning of true nobility comes when a man ceases to be interested in the judgment of men and becomes interested in the judgment of God. And thus, the first climax of the story is at this point, but Nebuchadnezzar's temper tantrum uh, pushes us forward to another climax. So now we have rescue in the fire. Now the king who thought that there was no God who could save these confessors from his hand now perceived God's intervention. Now we are ready. Everything's in place. But now notice the various loyalties talked about here before seem to complicate some kind of simple retribution principle. Namely, that the wicked should get their comeuppance and the righteous should get theirs. Rather, the loyal, the allegedly dutiful courtiers, that is the Chaldeans, now suffer. And we build to a pause. We try and take in what has happened. Our thoughts turn to three men. Oh, but now there are four. We had expected or hoped for deliverance from the fire, but now we only get deliverance in the fire. Isn't it interesting that often theophanies, that is appearances or manifestations of God, happen in connection with fire in our Bible? So now we backtrack to the furnace, and we see the repetition. The blazing, fiery furnace has all along been foreshadowing what would be absolutely central to the upcoming narrative. It is verses 25 and 26 from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. He, Nebuchadnezzar, answered and said, Behold, I see four men loose, in other words, unbound in their clothes, walking in the midst of the fire, and there is no harm upon them, and the appearance of the fourth is like that of the son of a god's. And then Nebuchadnezzar drew near to the door of the furnace of the burning fire. He answered and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, come, come. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out from the midst of the fire. Here there's not rescue from the fire, but rescue in the fire. In verse 26, the Aramaic is as I have rendered it. He saw a fourth that was like a son of the gods, namely a divine being. The King James Version, hundreds of years ago, rendered it as son of God without justification, according to the grammar. Indeed, some in the early church did interpret this as a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. However, later, notice in verse 28, he's called an angel. God or angel? Doesn't really matter. If it's an angel, it's God's angel. (laughs) It's what matters in the text. It's the principle of Emmanuel, God with us. The text now continues to describe how no harm Came to them. There wasn't even a whiff of smoke on them. Their hair was not singed. A miracle had been witnessed. And it is at just this point that Paul's immortal words find their homecoming Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Romans 8. God's presence comes in the furnace, not being preserved from the furnace. In conclusion, there's been many martyrs throughout the history of the church whose behavior has not only been intrepid, but downright heroic. Think of Stephen, the first martyr of the church, a deacon, prestigious uh, approbation given to the diaconate in the early church, her first martyr who received divine comfort and presence when he was given a vision of the divine courtroom. Think of the three English bishops, Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer, who were all burned at the stake at Oxford during the rule of so-called Bloody Mary, from the summer of 1553 to November 1558. I'll never forget the day we were in Cambridge, my son and I, and Chad Van Dixon grabbed me by the arm and said, come, come, you have to see this. And there was Latimer's pulpit in the foyer of a Roman Catholic church (laughs) on loan from the British Museum. And all Chad could say is, People forget their history, don't they? (laughs) Because not too far away, he was burned at the stake. As the flames began to lick at Latimer's body, he turned to his comrade Ridley and said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's good grace in England as I trust. shall never be put out. Or closer to home, think of one of our own OPC missionaries, one of the first, Bruce Hunt. In 1931, the Japanese invaded Manchuria, and the conditions for believers there grew increasingly grim. Reverend Hunt was a missionary to the Korean-speaking people in Manchuria, in the city of Harbin at the time, and he was used to greatly encourage the Korean-speaking brothers and sisters not to offer worship to any but the true and living God. And therefore, he openly opposed believers participating in Shinto acts of worship, and he had paid dearly for it because he was in prison for several months. Where do Christians derive the strength and courage to make such stance? Simply stated, from Jesus. But note how very different every martyr's death is from Jesus' own death. Remember, Christian, it was Jesus Christ himself who was put on trial before royalty proclaiming to be the Messiah. So, facing death, facing death, he refused to capitulate, as recorded in Matthew 27 verses 11 to 14. Now, Jesus was brought before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But in, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was amazed. See, Jesus' death was no mere martyr's death. No comfort came to him. No angel assisted him during his time of abandonment, even though he could have called down a legion. But no, there was no comfort. For he was the God-forsaken one, since he was the wrath-bearer. Jesus' death was much, much more than some mere martyr's death. Beloved, these Christians found their moral strength to make courageous stands because they knew that God was with them. Despite so many complaints in North America about infringements on our religious liberties, rarely is anyone in our country confronted with these kinds of decisions. Nevertheless, as John Calvin provocatively stated, as I said earlier, the human mind is a factory of idols, and we are constantly faced with temptations against idolatry, whether of Nebuchadnezzar's sort, in the most extreme, rare for us in this country, or more likely the kinds of idols we discover in our own hearts, which ultimately have one object, ourselves. See, for so many in our culture, especially in North America, when all the masks are ripped away, behind every idol of the heart is the self, enthroned and attempting to make meaning of our lives. But the point of Daniel 3 is ultimately to teach us that we must not only resist all forms of idolatry, but we must also be willing to go to the point of death in our resistance of it whether it's a Nebuchadnezzar's sort or the more subtle kind that we discover in our own hearts. Remember what the writer to Hebrews said at the end of his book, towards the end. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostilities so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. Let's pray.